Well, good morning, friends. It is good to be here this morning. Uh, we are definitely in summer mode. We have staff transitioning between vacations today and for the next few Sundays. Pastor Brad is uh, off on vacation. Uh, my wife Sylvia and I had the opportunity to be gone the last two Sundays, so we're glad to be back. And, uh, and then we'll have some time at the uh, beginning of August again. And we have uh, our new staff have transitioned on. You, Ruth Allen was on. Pastor Jen is here. Still has not delivered her baby, but it's uh, getting close. Due date is tomorrow or the next day or tomorrow. Um, yeah, and so Abby's been doing a, a wonderful job. Uh, like she said, we had kids camp this last week. We had 55 kids, I think it was, 55 kids. Uh, the vast majority from the community, I think there was only like 10 or 12 that were here from Jericho. And so just uh, a great uh, opportunity to... Um, share the gospel with these kids and to hear their questions. Who is God? Like, does he really exist? Or, I grew up a Muslim. This is what we believe. How does that work? And so just wonderful, wonderful things happening this, uh, this summer already. And so if you are visiting with us, uh, welcome here. It's good to have you. And uh, we hope that you join us uh, at, the, at the picnic later on today. Forgot to introduce myself. My name is Wally. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Second Exodus, Study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And at the back, we have uh, uh, booklets here that uh, co co uh, coincide with our series, um, and so we'd love for you to pick them up. They're good for uh, people of all ages, if you're youth, a young adult, older, kids, there's good questions in here, places to take notes. Uh, if you want one right now, you can just head off to the back, uh, or you can raise your hand and I'll have someone deliver it to you. If anybody would like one, I'll throw you this copy. Sandy, can you catch? That's a little dangerous. Gary, can you bring this to Sandy? He can have that copy. And if there are more people, there's some at the back there I see some of you taking. That's great. The other thing we have... To, that you can avail yourselves to um, during uh, this series is our question line. And we would love it if you would uh, text us your questions throughout as we teach in Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe these books are unfamiliar to you, or maybe we, uh, we talk about some things uh, in the books where you're just like, I, I need more, uh, I need more uh, understanding in that area, or, or that was confusing, or I don't know if I agree with what you said. The, the number is there for you to text. It's 844-650-1629. And then throughout the summer, uh, we, we'll, uh, we'll bring up the questions that people ask and we'll address them in upcoming messages. So we'd love for you to uh, take part uh, in that as well throughout the summer months. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah are two Israelite leaders uh, who accompany God's people out of exile uh, from Babylon and Assyria back to Jerusalem in a couple of different stages. And there's a lot of similarities between the first exile, where God took the people out of Egypt when they were in exile in Egypt and brought them back into their promised land. And so that's where we get this uh, title of our series, The New Exodus or The Second Exodus, because of those parallels that take place. Uh, Ezra, as uh, Pastor Brad talked about last Sunday, is more of a religious leader who has a calling from God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed when Jerusalem was taken captive. Nehemiah is more of a civic leader. 
And his calling, his inspiration is to go back into Jerusalem and rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and the wall is really a sign, not intentionally to keep enemies out, because remember, they're not really in a place of conflict anymore. They've been given permission to go back to Jerusalem. But the wall is more of a symbol of the holiness and the sanctity of the temple that's being rebuilt. It's an indicator that God is coming back to dwell here. And if you pass through this wall, you need to have that sense of reverence and fear of the Lord who is dwelling there. And so it has a significant place uh, for the people of Israel and for the nations, for the, for the dwellers around in terms of what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. As leaders, both Ezra and Nehemiah really are intended to help us understand what it means to live faithfully in challenging situations. Even though the opening chapters, Ezra 1 and Nehemiah 1, uh, as we talked about last Sunday, provide this clear sense of hope as the people are allowed to return, the way back home, the way of hope, the way to normalcy for these people is not this straight, happy-go-lucky line. These people aren't hopping in their cars, they're not hopping on a plane, traveling back to a turnkey home that they've been away from for a while on vacation. Something very different is happening for them. Yes, they're returning to their homeland. Yes, they are seeing the promises of God fulfilled. But what are they seeing when they get there? Their land, their city, their dwelling places is in ruins. The city of Jerusalem has been decimated. And both Ezra and Nehemiah require this faithful determination as they root themselves in the promises, in the calling, in the direction that God has given them. God called them back to Jerusalem with a specific purpose, to rebuild, to lay new foundations. And friends, for any of you who ever worked in construction, for any of you who ever done your landscaping in your backyard uh, or worked on a project that requires a foundation, you know that foundations simply take determination. Foundations take determination. And as we pick up the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah in the second chapters of each of their books, um, we, we begin to see that... Um, the initial call to go back really switches on a dime in terms of that hope to determination. That uh, joy that they must have had in traveling back subsides pretty quickly, I think. God's bringing them home. God is fulfilling his promises. And after all these years, he, even using pagan kings in both Ezra and Nehemiah to, to facilitate their way home, the Israelites must have been going step by step, filled with joy. They must have been going step by step, imagining what their, new, uh, their homes will look like in, in anticipation of returning to Jerusalem. Just imagine all these years after being held captive to be able to return back to their holy city. Imagine that feeling of elation. Imagine every step filled with hope, taking them closer and closer and closer to home. And then they finally arrive and they see the city of Jerusalem and it's wow. But it's not wow, it's wow. Like what has happened here? It's decimated. It is burned to the ground. 
It is decaying after years and years of neglect. For a parallel for us today, I was trying to think, how do we wrap our brains around what they might have been experiencing or seeing? I was quickly reminded of all the people in the last year in our province who've had their homes decimated from fire or flood. When you think back to the heat dome and you think back to the fall, and we would see day after day on the news, we would see devastation after devastation. And then in the aftermath, we would have uh, images and, and stories of people who are waiting I just want to go home. When do I get to go home and see what took place? When do I get to go home and see if my house is still standing? I want to go home. And there was this hope and this anticipation that maybe my home would be spared. And maybe my home was okay. Or maybe my neighbors would be okay. Or my animals. Do you remember those images clear day after day after day? And then watching those follow-up stories where that hope would turn on a dime. When these people would see There was nothing. Their homes were gone. Hope shattered. And somehow in the midst of their despair, they would need to turn to determination. Some simply didn't have that capacity. Some walked away, never to rebuild. Many, though, took that mindset and said, no, we will rebuild. We will somehow get together. Communities began to regather and to bind together to to rebuild and to lay new foundations, and their despair pivoted into determination. And I have to believe that that is what the Israelites must have felt when they returned home. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah and the people they led were sent home with both hope and specific tasks of rebuilding. And when they arrived, there must have been a sense of celebration, a relief and a gratefulness for God's goodness of freedom and the ability to do this, but there was also work to begin. And no matter what work you're called to, when you begin, when you begin to lay that foundation, it's never glamorous. It's, what do they say about, about a renovation project? What's the best part of a renovation project? Demolition? No. There's something, there's something even better than demolition. <laughs> when it's done. When it's done. That's the glorious part. When it's done. When all the mess is cleaned up and you invite family and friends over and say, look at what the beautiful things we have done. Nobody wants to be there. Yeah, some guys want to be there at the demolition. But they don't want to be there for the cleanup of the demolition. And they don't want to be there for the laying of the foundation of it all. So, yeah, there is, there is that. Friends, the, the least glamorous part is laying the foundation. I grew up, my dad had a residential construction company. And we worked from small, always on the job sites. And when we got to be a little bit older into our teens and he would drag us out every Saturday to work or throughout the summer, you know, there were certain jobs we could do. We were allowed to shovel, not glamorous. We were allowed to pull nails out of wood that other people had nailed in, uh, also not glamorous. And we were allowed to strip the forms of the foundation. We couldn't build the forms, but we were allowed to strip the form. There was no glamour. There was no, like, I can't wait to go work on the construction site with my dad moment when we knew it was the day to strip the the form of the foundation. That is the least glamorous part. And yet Ezra was called to Jerusalem to start to rebuild the temple. 
laying a foundation. Nehemiah was called to rebuild the city wall. He'd have to start with laying a foundation. And both of those projects would require resolve and determination. Remember, these people hadn't just stepped out of an airplane or out of their vehicles. They had walked from Assyria and Babylon. And now the work begins. Imagine that, journeying for days and days and days, getting home and realizing, whew, I'm tired, and now the work begins. So what fuels their, fueled their capacity for determination? I think there are three things in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 2, which we're going to focus in on today. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, uh, you can, it's hard to do on a device, but you can put your fingers in your Bible and flip to Ezra chapter 2 and to Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, we're going to toggle in between those two places. And I think there's three significant things that speak to us about determination and how we can increase our capacity and be more fueled with determination in our lives today. The first piece that I think fuels our determination, and Pastor Brad stole some of my thunder last week and spoke in more depth on it than I will this Sunday, but is simply the fact that God keeps his promises. When God keeps his promises, that fuels our determination. And we saw this borne out in uh, chapter 1 as Nehemiah, if you recall in chapter 1, spent time in prayer reminding God of how he promised Moses in the first exodus, that he would free his people. If his people repented and turned to him, he would free them, he would take them out of Egypt, bring them to the promised land. And uh, and Nehemiah has no doubt, as he's hearing word of Ezra's group, who's gone ahead of him, they're starting to rebuild the foundation of the temple, and he's starting to get spurred on with this drive to say, well, if they're going to rebuild the temple, we need a wall around the city. And so he wants to get involved. And so he begins to pray that prayer that he's reminded of that, that Moses experienced in the first Exodus. If my people repent and turn to me, God says, throughout the Old Testament, I will be with them. I will return them to my presence. It's a theme that goes throughout the Old Testament. And so Nehemiah could genuinely pray. This was not just a specific incident that Moses and the people experienced in Egypt. That's a theme throughout the Old Testament. And so Nehemiah could pray into that. And so that's what he does in the first chapter of of his book. If you remember the dates, Nehemiah chapter 1 starts in the autumn of a certain year. And Nehemiah starts to get that that stirring in him to head back to Jerusalem. And so he starts to pray towards that. Nehemiah chapter 2 happens in the spring of the following year. So roughly six months has happened. And I can only imagine that Nehemiah's drive and determination has probably begun to sputter and die down a bit. Like, God, I was praying way back here. You know how it is. You get this, this zeal and this energy to be praying for something or for someone and you, you, you put yourself into it and, and you go for the first day and the second day and the third day and the fourth day and you invite some others to pray with you and you pray for a week and you pray for two weeks and then nothing happens and you kind of pray again and then, and then you put it into your weekly prayer cycle and, and then nothing happens and you, you forget and Christmas happens and, and you start to think, hmm... Like, I know God heard my prayer, but what's going on here? Like, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And and our determination and our resolve and our energy around that prayer begins to dissipate. 
And I think this is what's happening. Six months later, for Nehemiah, it appears like God isn't really acting on his promise whatsoever. He prayed six months ago that he would find favor with the king, Artaxerxes, be allowed to go home. Uh, He's also in the king's presence every day, by the way. He's the cupbearer. He's there. He's the one who presents the king with his meals and, and and his wine. Like, he's there every day, multiple times during the day. Like, God has had ample opportunity to answer this prayer. But six months later, nothing happens. Nehemiah waits. And then in verse uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we can start to see the impact that it's having on him. Let's read chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Part of the reason that Nehemiah never appeared uh, sad before the king was not that he was never sad when he was in the king's presence, but it was dangerous to be sad in the king's presence. If you made the king sad because you were sad, it was very easy for the king to expel you or have you killed. You were not worthy of being in his presence. You were making the king's life miserable No king should have to endure that. And so you as a servant would be taken out. So here, Nehemiah is so overwhelmed in his sadness that it just flows out of him. Either he's disregarded, whatever happens, happens. That's just the state I'm in. Or that process, thought process isn't even there because the sadness is so overwhelming. Why are you looking so sad, the king says. You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Guess what God uses to initiate the conversation to begin the process of fulfilling his prayer, the answer to the prayer. (laughs) Nehemiah's sadness gets picked up by the king. It wasn't Nehemiah's boldness. I'm ready to ask the king or, you know, I'm ready, God. Like, come on, I'm all ready. God takes six months to bring Nehemiah to the place where his genuine sadness of what's going on is what sparks the king to say, what's going on, Nehemiah? It was this sad face that begins the process of sending Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. So even after six months of inactivity, supposed, God is still faithful and keeping his promise. It didn't happen the way that Nehemiah had probably thought it would happen in terms of the timeline. It probably didn't happen in terms of the way that Nehemiah thought it would in terms of the, the way it should happen in terms of his drive and his energy and his, let's go, let's do this now. I you know, want to be back in Jerusalem like right away. But God was still at work keeping his promise. Friends, when God calls us to a task or a role, he never leaves us to our own devices. Nehemiah, I'm sure, had a great plan of how that was all going to work out. Of how he would get back to Jerusalem, when he'd get back to Jerusalem. But God had something else in mind. And God always provides a way that allows him to fulfill his promises for the sake of his purposes. And we see and we experience God being faithful and keeping his promises. What, uh, one of the things that comes out of that is that it builds up a new sense of trust in us. It builds up a new sense of reverence 
in God's sovereignty and his rule in our lives. It begins to, again, realign us. Because, you see, and I've been very prone to this in my life, maybe none of you ever have, but if Nehemiah had gone in and said, okay, God, today's the day. I want King Artaxerxes to, to give me safe passage home, and I want him to do this and this and this so I can get there, and I'm ready to do it now, and I've got a plan in place. All I need for you, God, is to just check this one box. What are we doing? We're saying to ourselves and to God, I've got a great plan. If you just stamp your stamp of approval on this, then God, you can get out of the way and I'll get us there. That's not how God works. That's not how he wants us to be in relationship with him in the accomplishing of his purposes. He wants us to grow in our trust, in our relationship with him, with him. He wants us to grow in our resolve, in our tenacity, in our determination, character traits that we don't necessarily like to grow very much. He wants us to grow in our hope and in our reliance on him because he is king and he is sovereign. And Nehemiah could never have imagined how God would answer his prayer. Let's keep reading in uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 8. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. (laughs) Why? Because most people who appear sad before the king don't ever appear before the king again. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to heaven. (laughs) So again, that sense of what is going on here in Nehemiah's mind. With the prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, a little more boldness happening here, if it pleases the king, then let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on the way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I'll need that to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. You see how much planning in six months Nehemiah had gotten done? If this prayer had been answered in the first day, he might not have had the wherewithal or the the, the ability to look ahead to say, oh, it would be good to have this and this and this and this. He would have been flying by the seat of his pants. And the king granted these requests because... The gracious hand of God was upon me. Friends, in Nehemiah 1, he had hoped to get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls as quickly as possible. But imagine now, after having experienced that delay, and then experiencing God keeping his promise, the drive and the determination he must have had for what God was calling him to do. His capacity for determination was fueled because God kept his promises in his own time. 
A second facet in growing our determination is that God accomplishes his purposes with ordinary people. When God calls you to lay a solid foundation for something, he doesn't necessarily ask you to call the foundation experts. We do have foundation experts in the construction industry now. We didn't 20, 30 years ago when I was 13 and was helping build foundations. That's for sure. We live in a world of experts now. We can call in an expert if you're on the construction site. And in, and, and in most cases now, you, you better call in an expert to excavate. You better call in a surveyor who's an expert. You will call in someone who can help build or frame the foundation. You're going to call in the right crew to come and pour the foundation. And you're going to bring in a crew to strip the foundation and start the framing process. You need expert after expert after expert to help the right credentialed people to help you build the house or the structure. And friends, we do this in seemingly every capacity now in our lives. Think of almost any aspect of your life where you can just Google and find someone who's an expert. You may, not, you may have an appointment to see your doctor next week on Friday, but you've already checked how many experts along the way before you even get there on Google. You need to have your, um, your roof taken care of. Are you going up there and uh, reshingling these days? Some do still. I see someone in the back row saying, yep, I'd be up there, no problem. The rest of us call an expert. We don't want to go up on the roof. I once called an expert to check our roof. It's a funny side story. And he looked at the pitch of our roof and he said, oh, and paused. And I thought, what do you mean, oh? And then I watched him go up the ladder and he didn't scamper. He went up with uh, some, in, some fear. And I, I soon began to realize that on the crew that came to inspect our roof and give us an idea of how long uh, life had had, he was, the, he was the new person. He had just started because the way he sat on the perch of our roof was with a whole lot of fear and intimidation. So he was not the expert. But I did call out the experts. Friends, we do it in so many facets of our lives. We do it in our spiritual lives. Right? We call a spiritual director. We do it in our, in our mental, emotional lives. And I'm not saying these are, these are wrong or bad things to do. But we live in a world of experts now. And everything we do, we feel like we need an expert to take care of. Well, a word of caution. You don't need an expert for every aspect of your life. In fact, when God calls you to a task or to something, he's not necessarily calling you to right away seek out an expert. And again, I'm not trying to say don't seek a counselor or don't talk to your doctor or, or don't talk to a legit plumber as opposed to the guy who said he once unplugged the toilet. Like... <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that God doesn't necessarily need us to have our lives filled with experts. What I'm saying is, in fact, he fills our lives with way more ordinary people than he does experts. And so never underestimate yourself. Never underestimate the person that's sitting to your right today, the person that's sitting to your left, the person that's sitting beside them. Never underestimate 
what God is doing in them and how God is calling them to be a part of your lives to come alongside and help you in the area that you need help in. Yes, we have experts. And we do need them for specific times and sometimes purposes. But like I said, God places way, way, way more ordinary people in our lives. Dean Ulrich in his book, uh, his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, calls, uh, calls it the every member ministry. Every member ministry. God doesn't fill his churches with a bunch of experts. He fills it with us. With ordinary people. And he says, I'm going to build up my church with you. You may have something to offer here. You may have something to offer there. You may help out in coffee. You may help out on worship team, playing bass. You may help out mowing our lawn. We don't need to be experts doing this stuff. In both Ezra chapter 2, if you flip now to Ezra, which is the book before Nehemiah, and actually I'm going to go one chapter further in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, we have a, a list Pretty much the whole chapter of Ezra is just a list of names of nobodies. Insignificant people. How do I know? Because you've never heard of them. <laughs> you've heard of Moses. You've heard of Adam. You've heard of a few other prophet guys who, you know, were big names in the Old Testament. They had some, they had some carried some weight with them. You've heard of Isaiah. You've heard of some of these other people in the Old Testament. You know Job or Noah. I'm assuming you, if you even if you don't know the story, you've probably heard the name. How about the family of Shephatiah? Ezra took them along, 372 of them. How about the family of Zatu, totaling 945? How about the family of Asgad? Ooh, Asgad. No. 1,222. Oh, you guys know the family of Gibar. All 95 of them, right? You remember them? Mm, probably not. How about the citizens of Nebo? A whole 52 of them. Well, let's go big because somebody must have heard of the citizens of Sinah. There's over 3,600 of them that traveled with Ezra. You haven't heard of those people because they were quote-unquote ordinary. Ezra chapter 2, verse 64 to 70. So a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah. In addition, 7,337 servants and 200 singers. Verse 70. So the priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the professionals, the temple servants, and the common people settled in villages near Jerusalem. And it was those common people who took and did the work of laying the foundation of the new temple in Jerusalem under Ezra's leadership. And in Nehemiah 3, if you flip over there, you get not so much just straight lists like we do in Ezra 2, but you get a paragraph. At least you get a paragraph of the names. But as you read those paragraphs of names and clans and families, you recognize that you don't recognize any of them again. They're just people that are ordinary people. And yet they were the common people who did the work of laying the foundation of the new wall around Jerusalem. 
And in every one of those paragraphs in Nehemiah 3, you get this distinct impression that what he's driving at is it took the whole community. It took the whole community. In fact, in Nehemiah's case in chapter 3, it's interesting that Nehemiah's name, Nehemiah himself, his name is absent. He doesn't even get listed among the workers. And as we move through the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Nehemiah, he, as the narrator of the book, as the writer, uses the word I. I. I went before the king. I did this. I did this. I went and surveyed the wall. And then in chapter 3, through the rest of the book, the language changes to we. We rebuilt. We undertook this. It's, a, it's an interesting shift. We are in this project together. There's no one of us that's more important than the other. Each person is called by God. Each person contributes to the final result that brings God glory. And when you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, there does not seem to be any concern for expertise or for status. The builders laying the foundation of the temple and the wall come from different walks of life, and each one shares a commitment, a determination to fulfill the task. In fact, I think it's this unity of purpose, this willingness of the common people to work together for something bigger that allows God's purposes to be accomplished. Ezra needed those 43,000 other people. Nehemiah needed his thousands. God needed them. Yeah, he needed leaders. And we do read portions in the book that talk about the leaders stepping up in various ways and giving and contributing. But primarily, we read about the ordinary people. Almost all of the names in Ezra and Nehemiah are unfamiliar to us. The work of God's kingdom, my friends, invites the presence and the abilities and the capacity of you, the ordinary person, me, the common man. Some might be in higher positions of uh, profiled positions in our midst, in our church, but it takes all of us. It takes the determination, it takes the unity of all of us working together to accomplish what God calls us to, even in the face of opposition. And opposition is the third thing that, fu that fuels our determination. We'll see in the coming chapters of both Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly in Nehemiah, I won't steal uh, Kevin O'Coin and John Huaz, uh, they're two preachers that are coming in the following two Sundays. They're going to talk about opposition, opposition from outside and opposition from within. Uh, so I won't steal too much of their thunder. Um, but Ezra and Nehemiah um, experience a significant amount an intense amount of repeated opposition. We find some of that in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter 2. So I'll stay within. This is sort of the first, the first glimpse we get at the opposition. And it starts right off at the bat. Um, as there are those who live near the ruins. And they are... Opposed. They don't want Nehemiah to, to rebuild this wall. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 20. The city officials did not know I had been out inspecting the wall, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not spoken, um, and, and just pause here. Hear that I, I language? I, 
eye. Nehemiah is doing his role. He's talking in the eye language. Um, I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. So again, hearkening back to God keeps his promises. This is going to help fuel us. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously at us. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. But I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you, in opposition, have no share, no legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So immediately in verses 19 and 20, we see these three giving opposition. Nehemiah and his fellow workers experience right off the bat verbal criticism, false accusations. Hey, what are you doing? Are you going up, standing up against, rebelling against the king? Is this something we need to report? The three enemies of the project immediately come out and say, no, 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 no. We don't want this going on in our presence. And their sarcasm mocks the crew. They call their motives into question. And as naysayers, that that opposition happens for us as well. This won't happen. Let me point out to you why you can't do this. Let me point out to you why you shouldn't be involved in this. Let me point out to you why this is a bad idea. And a project can quickly get undermined because of that attitude. Enemies, opposition, emphasizing the difficulties connected with the project, harping on the negatives. And as a result, it can begin to demoralize. That's the intent. Let me demoralize those who are trying to get the job done. But Nehemiah, right off the bat, refuses to let that happen. He instead hands over the opposition to God. He doesn't say, I'm going to stand in your face. He doesn't say, hey, get out of here. I'm going to do this. No, he says, uh, my God will help. If you've got an issue with that, take it up with him. Because we're just going to go about our task and we're going to do this. He's called us to this. You don't want to be a part of it. Have a conversation with him. If God had led Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, then that's what he was going to do despite any of the opposition. Look at verses uh, two, 2, verse 20, and, and a verse out of chapter 4, verse 6. He said, so I answered them and I said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. And two chapters later, in verse 6, we read, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah was determined, and he inspired that within the people. They had a mind to work. He took the criticism... He left it with God. He turned to the task at hand. He left that opposition to face God and let God deal with it. Friends, both Ezra and Nehemiah are models of determination. They were tasked with laying foundations, and in order to accomplish their mission, they required this God-driven determination. And can I say today, I think... More than ever, we need this characteristic 
We need this trait within us as God's people. We need people who are committed to persevering, rather running and escaping. We saw it during COVID. We are so prone and so fickle as God's people because we have so many options and opportunities that when we don't like something, we just move on. You know, the preacher, he was okay today. Yeah, I've heard better. Maybe next week we'll check out the one over there. The worship team, man, did you hear that song? Whew, they blew it. But I heard that this church over here, it's got an awesome worship team. Let's go over there. I'm not so sure that what that person said when they greeted me was really sound theology. I wonder. I wonder if they're like uber conservative or, whew, they might be really liberal. Maybe we should check out a different place. We are prone to running. We are prone to hiding. We are prone to moving away from anything that challenges us. But friends, we need ordinary people of God who are determined to stay the course and face the challenges head on. We need each other. We really do. And if you're visiting with us this morning, maybe it's your first time or your second or third time, we welcome you into our midst because God has something within you that can contribute to who we are. And we have something that God has given us to pour into your lives. Is it always going to be great and rosy and welcoming and fun and happy-go-lucky? No! The more you get to know us and the more we get to know you, the more opportunity we have to rub shoulders and do life together and we get to speak into each other's lives and part of that is very messy. But I need you to challenge me. I need you to course correct me. I need you to call me out and say, hey, Wally, what you said up there on Sunday, I'm not so sure that that was biblical. Oh, let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation, please. Hey, I saw you during the week, and I'm not sure if I saw something right or wrong. Can we talk about it? Like, what's happening? We need each other who are determined and willing to persevere in each other's lives and face challenges and face growth with determination and perseverance. And the only way we can do that is if we have a sense of presence, longevity in each other's lives. If you're here for a month or two months or six months or even a year and then you're gone, how much opportunity do we have to sharpen each other? How much opportunity do we have to bring growth in one another? Friends, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the Christian life like this in 2 Corinthians. Just some of the phrases, adjectives that he uses for what our life is like. We're hard-pressed on every side. Perplexed. Confused. We live in confusing times. You want to be a Christian? We're persecuted. Oh, we've lived in power for decades now. But we are increasingly being marginalized. We are being increasingly pushed to the edges for our beliefs. We're struck down. Say, oh, I've never really been struck down. You may be. 
And when you do, you're going to need somebody to help pick you up. You're going to need people who love you and know you and understand who you are, who can come alongside and lift you up. And if you can't stand on your own after being struck down or the weight is too much to bear, they will stand with you and they'll hold you up. And they'll stand in that gap for as long as it takes until you keep moving forward. Our real world existence that engages our time and effort right now is neither ideal nor easy. We are increasingly being marginalized. We are increasingly, and I don't say that with a, with a, um, I don't know what the word is. Like, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay to be persecuted. It's okay to be marginalized. It's okay to be struck down. In fact, if you read other areas of the Apostle Paul's writing, he says, be thankful. Be thankful that when you proclaim the name of Jesus and you, you live your life for Christ, that others will persecute you. Be thankful that you are counted like him. But I also say you need the support of ordinary people around you who are like-minded, who are followers of the same Christ. Friends, God remains as the one who keeps his promises in the face of anything we face, be it opposition, be it heavy loads, be it being struck down, be it feeling overwhelmed. God keeps his promises and he continues to call us to engage and to be activated in each other's lives so that he can continue to accomplish his purposes. And friends, he is always, 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 always steadfast in the face of opposition. There is not one piece of opposition, not one scheme, not one plan, not anything that is set to take you down or out that is, has God shivering in his boots saying, oh boy, if that happens, I don't know what they're going to do. Oh boy. I hope that can be avoided somehow because I don't have a clue what to do with that one. There is nothing like that in God's economy. He is steadfast in the face of opposition. And he is this way for our sakes. So that as people, we can continue to persevere. We can continue to develop that character of determination. So whatever you're facing today, or whoever you're facing something with or for, maybe it's a relationship, relationship with a coworker. Maybe it's a relationship in your household. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's an estranged sibling or, or a friend. Maybe you're walking with someone in distress who's, who's, who's crumbling under the, the pressures and the weight that they're carrying. Maybe you're, you're confronting someone with truth and challenging them because of sin in their lives. At some point in the process, you're going to be tempted to give up But friends, hear this. God will honor in you the same things that he honored in Ezra and Nehemiah when they were tempted to give up and didn't. He will honor in you your determination. Ezra and Nehemiah are intended to reassure us and renew our resolve to live into what God calls us to. To rely on the faithfulness that he will keep his promises on our behalf. To surround ourselves with his people so that we are supported well. And to face the opposition head on in faith because he is at work behind the scenes. So if you're experiencing something right now, we want to stand with you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward.
and we're going to respond in worship and in, and in prayer, we want to stand with you. Today our prayer team is uh, Anne-Marie. She'll be at the back and have a name tag. Uh, myself will be at the back. Pastor Jenna will be at the back as well. Come and allow us to stand in the gap with you. If you're watching online, you can reach out to our, uh, our online prayer team, uh, which is prayer at jerichoridge.com. And so as we move into a time of responding to God in who he is and what he's doing in our lives, I encourage you to, to worship. I encourage you to worship the God who's kept his promises in your life and will continue to do so, the one who is faithful to any opposition you face. And I encourage you to step out and ask for the support of those around you. So as you are able, let's stand together. Jared and his team are going to lead us in some songs. Our prayer ministry is at the back. We encourage you to respond.